podcast, the only book club podcast that has a chariot waiting outside on the roof for when we're done recording. It's um, it's going to take us wherever we want to go, Amanda. Could do some errands, maybe, run and get a coffee, whatever we need. Yeah, heck yeah. I'm all about chariot riding. I think, I mean, we've long wondered as a culture, as a society, if flying cars were coming, but I think we're underestimating God-based chariot travel, or get, sort yep. of god wasn't it Helios who who brought the chariot in that story? Somebody did. <laughs> Some god. Yeah, Apollo. A- a- Apollo. Yeah, I think it's Apollo's chariot. Yeah, Apollo running through the ranks. Yeah, and so that's what we're promoting this week. Our sponsor is Chariot Air. <laughs> Ch- <laughs> Ch- chariot. Ch- Ch- dairy. Yeah. Dairy. This is reminding me of, um, this is an aside, but in Schitt's Creek, the sitcom TV show, there's a joke about an airline called Larry Air. So it just sounds like mm-hmm. that to me. Dairy. Air, <laughs> anyway, if you have no idea why we're wondering about God-based chariot travel, that is because you've stumbled upon a book club analysis episode. These are our deep dive episodes where we discuss a book in depth, do full spoilers analysis and talk through our thoughts about what we read. Today's is a part two book club on the essay collection. I think that's what we settled on calling it. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. what it is. <laughs> In- interpretation of Greek myth. It is called Pandora's Jar by Natalie Haynes. And so we'll be discussing the second half or the second part of that work today. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook under that handle, which is just all one word for simplicity's sake. So search us up at the Lightly Literary Podcast. And yeah, follow us for book updates, promotions of what we're reading, if you're just curious about the books we're choosing and what we're going to be doing in the future. Well, we do tell at the end of the episode, so stick around then, but we also post there. So yeah, follow us there. Any ratings and reviews on Spotify and iTunes, too, helps a ton, and we appreciate that. Uh, Book Club episode today will be spoiled. I guess should we name all the essays? I don't really think it's necessary. <laughs> I'm just lazy. Just the rest of it. <laughs> yeah, at this point, let's just say our part twos are always just the whole book is fair game. And so anything that comes up from any of her essays, analyses, we will be discussing and spoiling. If you have clicked on this episode in error and you're looking for part one, her first half, that is up in our podcast feed. So go check that out and you can come back and see us when you're ready for part two. Um, content warnings for this one, Amanda. It's the same blanket warning is with the first one, right? I mean, it's it, basically she's going to talk about any issue in Greek myth, so that often includes violence against women, sexual violence, things like that. Though, as with the first part, it's not really, she's not rewriting the myths, so it's not described in any detail. It's a lot of summaries. So, mm-hmm. any any specific content warnings to give? I don't think so. I think that, like, blanket covers it yeah violence yeah a lot of violence and um some child what's what's the word for child murdering infanticide is that the yeah when you kill your own kid but is that just for infants or is that just a blanket term for it i think it's the blanket term for it yeah for for all yeah when you kill well we got some of that coming up folks so brace yourselves for that but yeah any any sort of violent misbehavior in uh, the greek myths shall we get into it then i think we've we've set up enough here Part two, let's let's rock. We will begin it with our first segment, which we've settled on calling the 60-second summary challenge. It is where each of us has 60 seconds to summarize the back half of this book. This is mainly intended uh, for our non-readers, who if you're joining us and you just want to hear the discussion, you haven't read this book, we're going to give at least a very fast synopsis of what it's about, kind of the very basics of what she discusses. I think I went first last time, so we should should we put it on you? <laughs> Oh, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, change it up Let's a little it. bit. All right, she's ready. Um, do you want me to say go? I'll count it down. Yep. All Let right, me know. three, two, one, go. 
Uh, we've got Clytemnestra, who is the wife of Agamemnon, um, and she's supposed to be like the epitome of like the bad wife. So uh, mm-hmm. because she um, murders. Agamemnon, and also not just that, but um, not only she murderous, um, mostly because he killed her firstborn daughter, uh, but also because she doesn't um, uh, honor him. She's she's also an adulteress, even though he's an adulterer, and she Dirty. also is power hungry, so she wants to be queen. Then we have Eurydice, uh, that's with Orestes, um, uh, and these Orestes. Anyway, so uh, she's the one who died, but he came back to get her. Um, Phaedra, who is the... Oh, snaps. Phaedra is... Who is she again? (laughs) She's the wife... uh, She's the opposite of um, Clytemnestra in a lot of ways. Uh, Medea, who kills her own kids, and Penelope, who's the best. Uh, Yes, well said. All well done. Uh, Let me let me take my turn. See if I can cover any blanks. Um, That Fedra for sure. I I was like, man, I just reviewed who Fedra was in my mind, and I totally forgot already. It's tough because her and yeah, you're right about the Clytemnestra and Fedra. I would have well, yeah. Anyway, going second, there's some power in that. (laughs) Um, Okay. All right, you ready? Do the countdown whenever you're ready. Yeah, sure. Three, two, one, go. So first, as Amanda covered, Clytemnestra is up. She enacts a 10-year vengeance on her husband, who's away at war and takes another bride, and so hers is kind of a revenge story. And yeah, the Greeks treat her as sort of the epitome of the bad wife, but obviously this reads her in a much different way and gives her some motivation. Eurydice, which I always pronounce Eurydice, by the way, we'll have to cover that later. She is the woman who doesn't get a lot to say and has a... A husband who goes down to hell to, to retrieve her and, and fails at that because he can't look away from her, turns back. Um, essentially, that's a reread that focuses on her lack of agency and kind of who she could be. Phaedra, as Amanda covered, is the person who falls in love with her stepson but is cursed by the gods. As always, the gods are to blame, not actually her. It's not her fault. That's a short reading of that. <laughs> Medea, I thought by far the most interesting one. Medea is a super powerful sorceress witch who Ten. falls in love with Jason and then ends up murdering her own children and him in an act of vengeance and Penelope's the one I can't remember anything about <laughs> I don't, and I read it yesterday <laughs> sorry <laughs> so there we That's each had a blank his wife yeah oh okay yeah, yeah. anyway well yeah yeah, she runs, she's she, the the ideal Greek woman yeah she runs she the world she does is weave yeah right. Um, fantastic. Oh, yeah. Any thoughts on Penelope then? I know I ran out of time at hers. Uh, anything we missed or any thoughts on Penelope? You want to summarize that one quick? Uh, yeah. So she's the one who, um, weaves and then unweaves the, the shroud to try to trick those suitors. Right. Into leaving her alone. Um, but she's held up as like the ideal woman, but she, um, Haynes, the writer, kind of goes into depth about how clever she actually is and how that's kind of like underrated in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's um, true. Or underplayed. So, yeah. Yeah, her and Medea, I guess, are that to to Haynes. They are probably the the most under-examined or maybe under-appreciated um, women in the myths. I don't it'd be hard to pick one actually, now that I phrase yeah. it that way, but <laughs> uh, anyway. Um <laughs> so let's talk about, let's dive in and do some more segments and talk about these in depth, shall we? Let's do some quotes for clarification now that our summaries are out of the way. Do you want to start us off? We like to give in part two a couple of quotes from the work, just discussion points, things we thought were well well done or interesting or maybe not so much. Anything you want to start with? Any of the myths jump out to you? Sure. Um, this one, my first one is from 
Medea, uh, the Medea passage. Yeah, it was my favorite. I chose one from Medea too. She's definitely my favorite character, even though she, you know, kills her own kids. But like, I I liked how powerful she is and how cunning she is in a lot of ways. Well, I think, and maybe I'll just skip ahead to this point now. But I just think that in the back half, the thing that started to get to me is that Haynes, while so much of it is well done and her scholarship is, is solid, seems solid to me, so many points come back to like, well, they just didn't focus on them, so I'm left to infer from scraps, basically. <laughs> she never words it that way, but that's kind of – so many of her points come back to that. And so at least with Medea, it's like it pairs an actual main character with her analytical tools. And so, of course, mm-hmm. it was like I thought it would just seem like such an obvious strong chapter because it's like, yeah, because you actually have a main character worthy of studying. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. uh, the Greeks didn't treat her as a cast off side character to motivate some hero or, you know, to act as a plot functionary. So right. it was just kind of, yeah, it's like, of course, it's the best or most interesting to it. Was, I, I interpreted it that way because it's just like, well, yeah, you actually have some real sub- substance to examine instead of yeah. just scrap with Eurydice, for example. I'll get to that. Anyway, yeah, uh, dive us in with a quote here. Uh, So this is from page 240. Of all living creatures, she says, uh, Medea says, we women are the most wretched. Her first complaint is that women have to buy a husband, she means with a dowry. Then he becomes the ruler of our bodies. This makes a bad thing worse because women don't know if they'll get a good husband or a bad one and they aren't able to divorce or reject him. Um, I chose that one because I thought it was um, pretty key to um, some of her uh, Haynes's points in this it's um, she's very much a, a feminist writer she's undertaking you know examining women in, in Greek myths so yes um, and how that perception has changed over the retellings and over time and uh, according to cultural <clears throat> cultural, not beliefs, but mindsets, I suppose. Anyway, um, so I thought that was interesting that the idea of like being, of not being bought, but of actually doing the buying, but then Mm -hmm. being stuck with a purchase, like no matter what. Um, So it's like they they do have, it's almost like they do have the power to choose because it's their dowry, but even back then it's not the women didn't get to choose their own husbands and the men did the choosing for them so they they have the money and it's not even i guess their money it's their father's money i was going to say there's uh, a whole father issue there staring yeah, at in exactly. the yeah exactly yeah but i liked it too because it Medea is making that argument, and this is ancient greece so mm-hmm. she's pointing out the uh the inequality in her society and I just I just thought that that was so it was surprising to me that that would be something that and of course these are male writers so I think right um your who is the one that she really likes your 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 effigies oh yeah male writer I was gonna bring this up later and this is actually a sneak peek to of 
uh, final segment for today almost. But yeah, I almost feel like that's the book she should have written that I would have loved to have read is just write about that guy she so clearly admires. The, the <laughs> author. Like your, I think Euripides. it is Euripides. Yeah. yeah. But it's just like, and it, that's true too. Once you notice that in her essays, it's like, oh, one thing she relies on fair, fairly enough is like his plays seem to come through for her a lot where she's like, oh, yeah. you know, if we look at five of the plays in ancient Greece, there's really one that she needs to like make a key point and it's going to be his. <laughs> like he is the exactly. writer. And she even says as much, you know, more or less. She says he's, he has like an incredible sight, insight and like a knack for writing women compared to the other Greeks. So yeah, he of course comes through here too. <laughs> of course. Yeah, of course. Like giving women an actual voice in, in the literature and in the plays. Yeah. So yeah, I, I just thought that was, yeah. that was great. That was a great insight especially for that time period written by a man yeah those so, bullet points yeah. that she lists in her argument Medea it's yeah I mean it's resounding even today or if you would have especially gone to like su- the suffrage movement in America or something if you would have just bullet point listed some of those and she she does at some point quote from that movement and talks about how women have have gone back to Greek myths to for references and insight and wisdom or, or what have you but yeah she does list off just some common complaints and in, in imbalances inequalities so, yeah, yeah. Always interesting when an ancient source so well predicts or mimics the modern problems. Depressing or uh, comforting, I don't know. I'll leave that to the <laughs> listeners to decide. Yeah, my quote from Medea was going to be a couple of details just about her character and I think why this chapter worked well. Uh, she At the beginning, when she's summarizing her, she says, um, Medea can stop full-flowing rivers or a star on his course or even the moon. She is thus presented as a dual character, young and naive, but simultaneously powerful and strong. And then later she says, all those heroes who have embarked on quests to battle or overthrow monsters like Perseus, Theseus, and Jason, all of them need assistance in their crucial moments. Medea does not. She has learned her skills from Hectate, can summon up her own power when required. This is somewhat different than having a god swan in and out to help or protective hat or special sword. But still, in matters of love, she is scarcely more than a girl and doesn't even know, at least as um, Apollonius tells it, the salutary lesson from her cousin Ariadne's dalliance with Theseus. So I think this is probably a good summary of what makes Medea fascinating to me. And again, it's it was unsurprising that Haynes did well with that chapter just because there's so much kind of content to explore and so much detail to poke at nuance to explore but it's just that she has a really fascinating dual existence of yeah she's like young and kind of a kid or child but then also is um just incredibly strong and stands up to any of the heroes from the myths obviously mm-hmm. in the play that she's in Medea is not naive or young anymore she's like a woman with adult children or grown children and has been living with Jason for a long time so that adds kind of an interesting twist onto her behavior and her you know intensity in that play and everything um mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I just thought it was like leading into that chapter, hearing that about Medea was just like, oh, this will make for an actually compelling character that Haynes can, you know, put her intellectual powers upon or something. Um, yeah. And, and I like that um, piece that you read, too, because it shows that it that Medea is actually more powerful than these heroes because the heroes have to outfit themselves yeah. with gifts from the gods. And they're also a lot of these heroes are... Um, not just blessed by the gods, but they're also usually like demigods. There are at least one yeah, parent is a god or goddess. Yeah. yeah. Um, just like Medea has um, a parent who is, um, I forgot who her, is it Apollo who's hers? Yeah, because the chariot saves her in the end. Yeah. So there must be some connection. I, I forget as well, but yeah. 
Yeah, but she doesn't rely on the gifts of the gods. She uses her own power to defeat these monsters pretty handily. Yeah. Um, so it's just it's a it's nice to see a female character who is even stronger than than these dudes who are like outfit me up guys with like you know everything and yeah. and then and give me a helper. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. I um. I think I was going to bring this point up later, but I may as well do it now. I think the ending of this one, too, the fact that the chariot comes, that Medea, she almost ends it as kind of a in glory, bathed in, in godly glory. Yeah. Of like she gets this free escape and gets to taunt Jason from above in the, in the stage. It was just another reminder to me or another point to me where I thought... I think that Haynes should just write the book about this guy Euripides then, because, like, uh, how does a person <laughs> in ancient Greece interpret it so radically differently from other people? What does that mean? Why are his plays so much more interesting in regards to women? And, and also, like, that is a design choice, a set choice, a plot point choice. What does that say about, like, he seems to have a pretty cynical interpretation of gods compared to his contemporaries or something. At least that's how this yeah. it came across to me. And so, I don't know. I mean, I think this book was very strong in many ways, but also it did leave me wondering, like, maybe just the Euripides book would would have compelled i don't know that's just speculation but it did it did remind me too that um the other point i want to make that i forgot to just now but it's just it all comes back to gods too unfortunately the one thing that i think in my mental framework the two points that i just started to notice a lot and i couldn't get out of my head was either she's having to read in this way because there's just not much to say there's not much the myths say and so she has to kind of make a ton of inferences and connections to interpret the women interestingly that was the one angle i started to notice obviously medea that's not a problem at all um but the other angle i started to notice is just like it is all the god's fault like the women get blamed unfortunately and and the focus is often wrong because they just don't shift it back to the gods who really cause every problem (laughs) and so i mean obviously it's like way too oversimplifying and there's there's a lot more subtlety and like themes to unpack than that but really like a couple of her key points came back to like well and if we just trace it back two steps like it's really it shouldn't the focus shouldn't be on the women it should be on the gods who have manipulated them and and like made them do certain things or force their behavior and it's just kind of like yeah i mean maybe that that point just came up too often but but it's true it's kind of like a hard to ignore truth of these myths yep it's especially for um phaedra right like her entire backstory is just that she was and it wasn't even her fault. Like, they, they punished Phaedra in a way, but not because they did disliked Phaedra. They punished her f- for... Is it Theseus? They did, they did it because... No, Perseus because of maybe? the Hipp- Hippolytus, oh. the, the boy. Yeah, because he son. shunned Aphrodite. And then Aphrodite's like, you know what? I'm a curse your stepmom yeah right <laughs> it's like she didn't even do anything <laughs> yeah and i think I, the, the obvious thing to say to that too is like well in ancient greece the gods these are often metaphorical or symbolic like she says they didn't have psychology so a lot of the times the actions are meant to represent human you know i i get that it's a lot more subtle than this but just in terms of like pure plot and character kind of simple analysis it's like yeah, I mean, the women, the thing we should just never forget is that it's the gods, really. And that's and so maybe analyzing the gods would be a much more fruitful, like, interesting endeavor. Because I do think there, uh, obviously, there's a lot more paths to end up on analytically with these myths. But she does end up on those two paths pretty often. Either, like, we're really under-examining the role of the gods here, or um, there's just not much, like, core text. So we have to, 
you know, a lot of it's left to us. Um, anyway, let's do, I pulled another quote from the Eurydice chapter. Did you think that one was interesting? The, definitely the one where it was kind of making the feast out of a famine. Like there's not much about Eurydice. And so she has to, <laughs> that was the chapter to me where I noticed it the most, where I was like, yeah, there's just not a lot of core text here. So there's a lot of like, not reaching, but it's just, she has to interpret on behalf of the, the myth a lot. Um, I think that's uh, kind of her point, though, is that um, through the retellings, because we have to rely on uh, our own understanding of the text, especially when there's not some, you know, a lot of these stories have been lost over time. Um, Yeah, this is the quote. uh, Let me read this quote and then I'll. Yes. Um, Because at the end, she does a couple. um, She, Haynes summarizes some modern retellings of Eurydice's story, like poets and writers and playwrights and stuff have tried to update this and rewrite the tales. It's actually a really common literary thing for people to do is like rewrite a myth or, you know, reinterpret. Yeah. Anyway, um, and this is the final paragraph. It says, Duffy nails Eurydice's problem in the traditional versions of the myth. No one ever asks her what she might like. She has no agency in her story and we don't even know how she feels about it. Orpheus makes his grand catabasis in search of her and so we are dazzled by the romantic power of his attachment and the persuasive power of his liar playing, but why should Eurydice feel the same way about him that he feels about her? Because she is so frequently silenced, we have just assumed that she does. And so, I don't, like, it's just that classic analysis of, like, you're not wrong, but is this interesting or worth saying? I mean, I guess it's worth saying because uh, of how we, you know, predominantly focus on the male tales, and I, I think all of that is fine, but it's just kind of like, is it an interesting point to say, well, she just doesn't get much focus, therefore she's uninteresting? Like, that's just always true. I mean, there are definitely st- side characters in stories or minor characters in stories, um... Uh, who kind of steal the show, is that the expression? Or, like, steal the spotlight? Mm -hmm. But, yeah, Yeah. for the most part, the main characters get the main consideration because they're the main characters. It's kind of circular. And so I don't don't know. I just... It wasn't that any of her points were, like, off to me or or not worth examining, but also it just kind of came back to that same conclusion, and that was where I noticed it most. Where I was like, yeah, I don't know what... I think there might not be much to say about Eurydice because the mythmaker, the person writing the story, didn't want it. They just didn't have much to say. Um, I don't no, it just felt, I wouldn't call it shallow, but maybe a bit obvious or just not that interesting to explore. Um, yeah, and I appreciated her reading on the whole. Like, I think there's interesting points. Her work with language in the second half was as strong as in the first two, so the, those things retained their intrigue. But yeah, I don't know. I think that was the chapter where I noticed it and just thought, like, I guess if we're going to wind up in that at that conclusion, do we need do we need an essay to say that? I mean, I guess it's worth unpacking, but did, did that? did you notice that? Did you care about that? Yeah, so for the the chapter on Eurydice, I also, I felt like it was the weakest chapter of all the chapters, um, yeah. because I felt like she was really reaching with her as a character, and <clears throat> she didn't have as much of the the deep dive going back into the, the BCE texts that she did for well, the other works. Yeah, you know? and you can tell that too because half of that chapter is dedicated to a different myth and then her point with that is to say, why do we care so much about Eurydice when this other myth is more interesting? <laughs> and it's like, right. yeah, I mean, again, it's, it, it wasn't like, I didn't think it was a false comparison or it wasn't a, it was not an illogical one. I think thematically I get why she would do that comparison to try and tease it out. But it's kind of just like, if the main, if a huge bulk of this chapter, the point is like, here's a better one. Why don't we care about this? I don't know. Then just write about the better one. Like, I don't, again, the point just kind of felt, 
I, again, did not moot or bad. It was just kind of uninteresting to me or something. It was just, yeah. Um, yeah, now, I, it's funny, too, because I like that chapter, but almost because I noticed some of the seams in the writing and the argumentation mm-hmm. where I was like, oh, yeah, I think I'm starting to notice some things in this. And so I, I almost engaged with it more just because of those, I don't know, I was going to say problems, but shortcomings maybe would be a safer way to say it. Um, what did you pull a quote from? Was it Penelope? My other quote is actually from the conclusion. It's the very last paragraph in the conclusion. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, And she just says, We do not live in a world of heroes and villains, and if we believe we do, we should really consider the possibility that we haven't thought about things properly. We cannot hope to make sense of our stories or ourselves. Myths are a mirror of us, after all. If we refuse to look at half of the picture, or worse, don't even notice half of it's missing. This book is an attempt to fill in some of the blank space. Um... So I, I chose this quote because I, I liked that we again get a sense of her humor, which is what I think really makes this such an approachable read overall, um, where she gets kind of like, you know, like snarky in some ways. Um, and she's, you know, very playful, I think, um, mm-hmm. with her tone. Um, but also it kind of restates what she's what her purpose is. In, in writing this um, collection, which is to to kind of analyze um, where our understanding of these literary pieces come from and how it reflects the culture of our times and how we can kind of like use myths to figure out what we need to change as a society or what we need to really look at as a society. So yeah, I like that. And I think, too, that the – it is sort of an act of rebalancing or maybe, I guess, to the, my point so far, because I've brought up – I don't know if I'd say it over-reading or something, but, I mean, you kind of have to do that if you want to extract interesting comparisons or deeper readings or you just kind of – you have to make a lot out of a little just by kind of definition. And, and so, yeah, I did enjoy her work in that regard. It's – I guess having Medea thrown in there I felt – I don't know. I didn't feel like we were getting a different book at that point because so many of her main points and kind of analyses and stuff are the same in the Medea chapter. But it's just clear that when you are given a character who's, you know, deeply more involved, interesting, complicated, that it's just, yeah, it just makes for easier, like, more believable analysis. But, yeah, no, I think I think overall mission accomplished. Then did you think she, do you think overall then the book was a success in, in that thesis? I think so. I think so. I think she, she did a good job upholding that thesis. Yeah, definitely. Well, any other quotes to pick from the back half? Nope, I'm good. No other climate, climate, climatinestra. I always struggle with that name. <laughs> um, I pronounce it Clytemnestra. <laughs> Clytemnestra. I appreciated the yeah. long, there was like a long paragraph in that chapter about her breaking down the colors and the rare, rareness of colors and the deep red and how it was like a blood symbol and stuff. Yeah. And she's like, okay, yeah. You know, those sort of aside analysis paragraphs I, I appreciated, you know, the symbolism of the scene or, or whatever. So, yeah, there there are many interesting points and I thought um, did you know of any of these characters secretly because I actually definitely knew of 
oh, you're, it was Eurydice because of a video game I recently played. So I was like, oh, I know this story. I know this myth well. I think also Orpheus. Oh. I read a novel update about Orpheus, like a reinterpretation of Orpheus a couple years back. So that was the one in the back half I knew well. Uh, yeah, so I, I was a little bit familiar with Clytemnestra um, because of that movie with Brad Pitt, um, the Troy movie. Oh, yeah. She is in yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Good call. And, um, and I knew of Penelope because of the Odyssey. Sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, the the others I I I, I had heard of the the Orpheus um, the Orpheus story before, but I didn't know the name of Eurydice. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. And neither did the ancient Greeks, at least uh, barely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, were, they also would not have, because one of her key points in that one, too, is that it was unpopular or not that popular. Like, it took, you you only saw her li- much later on. So, uh, anyway, let's jump to some imaginary essays, shall we? This is our third segment in our part two book clubs, where we each give each other an essay prompt to outline. So just as clarification, we don't actually write these essays. They are just bullet points, and we do some thoughts and plan some thoughts on this. Just one last way to analyze the work and see what we thought of it. Do you want to go first or second? What do you think? It doesn't matter to me. I'm good. Okay, I'll have you go first then. So my question, which came in late, so we'll you know keep, stay loose with this one here, <laughs> but it's pretty simple. I the one thing about this collection is I would say, I it's odd. I, I could, because every chapter I enjoyed, but I just I think reading a book length of this did is not what I would normally prefer. I would prefer mm-hmm. someone to hand me the best essay from something like this and be like, you have to read this. This will really change your views or this will really enlighten you. Um, and I wasn't fighting through at the end to finish it. Like I did, I said, enjoy every chapter in its own merits. But I, this isn't the normal book-length thing I would enjoy. This is my build-up to the question. <laughs> so my, my question mm-hmm. is this, basically. like, Which chapter are you going to pluck out to give to a stranger, to a friend? Or like perhaps a person who's just like, I don't know anything about Greek myths. I don't have really any interest like what do you think is the chapter that's going to compel in that way because as i said my normal engagement with scholarship like this or sort of writing like this where it's sort of approachable scholarship is just give me the best one so i can get illuminated Mm -hmm. like doing a book length of this i would say takes some work um so that's my question like which one are you plucking out to highlight to give to a, a skeptic so I think that the strongest essays are actually the in the first half that we read. Um, so I was kind of torn when I read your question. Yeah. I was like, mm, should I do, would I recommend Pandora, Helen, Medusa, or the Amazons? Because they all are, uh, even if you have no interest in Greek mythology and if you have not, you know, delved into it, in school, those are the stories probably that you're going to know the best. Um, right. Pandora maybe less so, but you, everybody knows Pandora's box. It's like a, you know something that is referenced in in other forms of literature, um, and it's used as almost a, uh, like an idiom in some ways, almost. Um, so that you're there'll, there'll be some familiarity with that. Um, but ultimately, right. I think that I would give the Amazons um, because I think most people have some frame of reference for the Amazons, even if you've not studied literature. So like, even for me, when, um, 
I, I've heard of the Amazons. I've seen Xena, Warrior Princess, right? <laughs> yeah. And we know of the, uh, the Amazons as like you know this female tribe of warriors. I think that without you just know, even if you have not read it from the Greek mythologies themselves, because I did not, re- I don't remember reading about the Amazons, but I just know of the Amazons through other interactions with, you know, literature, movies, TV shows and stuff like that. So I think that that could, would maybe ring a bell for most people. Yeah, I think, yeah. Also in the Amazons chapter or essay or piece um Haynes also references um two very well known current more modern uh examples that she analyzes which would be Wonder Woman yeah um and then also Buffy the Vampire Slayer so if you have no interest in Greek mythology at least you will be familiar with one or both of those more modern references. And she goes in some really good detail, especially with the the Wonder Woman one, which is what we talked about in the last episode. She goes into some really good detail about that, analyzing that as well, and uh, talking about how that differs from um, the the previous myths. So, so you get a good idea of, at least from a modern perspective, even if the, the rest of the essay doesn't uh, connect with you at least in the latter half of that essay when she's talking about the more modern aspects that would definitely be something that could pique somebody's interest um, right. and I think also her because her overall idea is that like you know you need to go back to the original scholarship and, and from that original um, piece just kind of you can track how society changes with their views of women over time and how women are handled um, in literature when they are in positions of power or, you know, lack of power and stuff like that. Um, I think that this piece did that really well um, because she points out the ambiguity of uh, the main um, Amazon warrior who goes by three different names, right? She's Hippolyta, but she's also known as... Antiope is another one of her names, mm-hmm. and uh, she had the other one, which is Finid. Finid. What is her name? Fin- <laughs> I don't. There's too many names. You know I'm lost. <laughs> you, know I'm, you know I'm bogged down in this. I'm absolutely punished. <laughs> I have no can't help you at all. I have no chance of helping. <laughs> yeah, Penthesilea. Penthesilea. Oh. Um, so she goes by three different names um, throughout the literature as well, which is adding to the confusion. Her origin story changes, her um, relationship to these different uh, Greek heroes like Theseus and um, Achilles and and Paris. Like Her relationship to these people keeps changing over retellings as well. So we're still keeping in line with her main... Um, discussion point, which is, you know, studying how these reinterpretations change over time and how um, a power is stripped from these women over time as well, um, which we see in, in the tales for, for Penethesilea. Um, and also, it she does do some of that language work that we really liked, um, where she talks about the difference between Hippolyta's girdle 
versus Hippolyta's war belt and stuff like that. So uh, we get all the elements that we liked in here that you and I talked about and we we enjoyed, but also I think it's a lot more approachable. It's the most approachable, I think, for somebody who is uninterested in Greek literature. Yeah, yeah. Do you think, would you say you would recommend the Medea one to people who have actually read that original? Because the interesting thing with that, she compliments the speeches so much throughout that one and she breaks down one of her speeches in incredible detail like almost almost line by line or it felt like that do you think that would be the recommendation for someone who's read that play then to say like if you've read i guess let me ask this question then is just an addendum or second point like which one if a person knew the source material but they had never read her work which one would then you recommend where it's like oh i know about x and i know it well but here's a new way to interpret it or consider it and even jump out that way I would say Pandora's jar. Oh, Pandora yeah, yeah. herself. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, that that one, I think, is it still covers her main point really well, which is, you know, like, why is she villainized? It's because yeah. of the changing attitude towards women. With Medea, I felt like that one was actually pretty out of place for this because mm. she's... Medea, she makes the point that Medea has, like, always kind of been a badass, and then, like, and in modern times, like, women continue to enjoy playing that character because she is such a badass. So it's it doesn't quite fit with her main point of these women, these female characters are often stripped of their... Um, of their powers, make they're made to be weaker, to be lesser. Um, right. But the I loved the Medea chapter um, on its own. I think that it's such a it, it's like it, it was more like literary analysis, and I really enjoyed yeah, that. And, I, and yeah. I had not read the Medea play at all, like anything about that before. Right. Um, but I loved it for that reason. But I think that it was not, it did not support her main thesis. Um, as well as the other chapters did. Yeah, well, and it, the the odd thing again, and I can't, I, it's once you notice your own sort of analytical take on something, I guess you just keep coming back to it as I'm about to do again annoyingly. But it's like mm-hmm. some of her conclusions in the Medea chapter are essentially like, hey, this lady's complicated and they don't hold back and they treat her like a complicated real person. But again, that's the same analytical angle of like, well, yeah, because there's more to know about. Like it's, it basically right. comes back to again, it's like, well, yeah, she's more interesting because she's an actual main character who gets main character consideration. So again, we get back to the problem of like, the problem is that they just didn't focus on enough women and didn't treat them like main characters. Like as soon as they do, or at least Euripides, (laughs) as soon as Euripides is like, I'm going to dedicate a play to this woman and her her strife, like it's really interesting and good and she's vicious and cunning and interesting and thoughtful and she loves her kids too. But like it kind of does resolve to that same point again where it's like the problem is that there's just not a lot of source material when there is, it's interesting, and when it's not, she—it's like, hey, these women are shallow, and we, the Greeks, didn't consider them enough. So I—I I don't know. Again, I feel annoying coming back to making that same point again. But it's true, mm-hmm. though. She even at the end of that essay says things. There, you know, there's phrases in there like, "This is a full person who's complicated, and it's hard to understand her." And we, you know, we really get her from all sides. And it's like, yeah, because she gets main character attention. You know, like, yeah, not not that that automatically bestows the writer with good right. You know, it doesn't just because you write something with the main character doesn't mean it'll be good so it's more right. than that but yeah i just think a couple of points resolve back to that and so 
you're right. It's the Medea stuff I thought was fascinating as someone who'd never read Medea. I, I think that or mm-hmm. thought that, but you're right that it kind of you could shoulder shrug at it a little bit. Yeah. All right, throw your essay my way. I'll do my best. All right, so um, you said that you were familiar with the female characters from the first half of this book more so than the second half. Um, yes. How does the second half of the book hold up for you? Did you feel the need to approach the latter half differently? And what has choosing these lesser known in the general public characters, how has that added to Haynes' work overall? Just Yeah. Final time I'll say these so directly, but the thing that changed in the second half for me was not the quality of the writing or even really the fact that I wasn't familiar with the sources. It was that, again, A, I noticed that a lot of her analyses came back to, hey, these source texts are shallow and there's just actually not that much detail and there should be more detail and complexity and intrigue and two like the gods are really just to blame shouldn't we analyze the gods like let's stop let's stop putting it on these women and like we shouldn't we examine who are the gods how do they behave what are they like how can we interpret them but again this book is not about the gods so it's like of course that analysis isn't she doesn't go into depth about that too often but to me those two things felt like the the dead ends that a lot of these uh, analyses ended up in um, mm-hmm. for, for better and worse so that I would say that's the only thing that changed the second half of the book for me is just I started to notice those two points more and just think about them more like when she was doing long analytical paragraphs about certain aspects I just kept asking myself like could either of those two points resolve this or kind of like provide an answer to this <laughs> and a lot of times they could so anyway that's that's what changed the second half um but no i enjoyed it actually just fine i think it had the chapter that engaged my brain the most was eurydice because of some of the shortcomings and then the one that just kind of entertained me and intrigued me the most was medea just and we've kind of broken that one down really well but it was just like what a complex character what a lot there's so much to say about her a lot of things to look into even as you mentioned the literary sense she really does line by line readings and analyses of some of those scenes and so that was kind of cool. Um, I think oddly enough, I've, I've unpacked through the other segments a lot of the two things about that that I wanted to say. But I'll, I'll bring up a couple points or a couple questions from the second half um, and how maybe I read it differently. What did you make of her Beyonce uh, use? <laughs> Beyonce illusion? I, I don't know. <laughs> because I will say that it does... <sighs> This is a common structural thing, of course. This is not, she's hardly reinventing the wheel or something by doing this, but she does the classic, like, I'm going to use it in the intro and the conclusion, let's go full circle with this thing. But did it feel too shallow for you? Uh, yeah, I was like, eh, I could, I could do without that. It's uh, like the whole point was to, uh, that she was making the, she was posing the question essentially do you want me to be crazy or jealous? Yeah. Right. Was or the, the crazy or jealous? Yeah. Or both. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I was just like, ah, that's kind of a, it's a bit of a reach. I mean, it's a nice image. She begins with really nice imagery, right? The description of the video is really nice, but I don't know the connection to it. I was like, man, And I struggled, too, with it. Now, she also goes on a long aside about the color of her clothes and then, you know, connects that to ancient Greek. And that's just classic academia, maybe overreaching, but not in a dissatisfying way where you're sort of like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's interesting. You know, I wouldn't have thought of that. That's like a pretty intricate connection that, you know, who knows if we can ascribe Beyonce's authorial intent that far or something. (laughs) But but it's like, okay, interesting. I'm not opposed to it. But then, like, that's the thing is it's page one and then disappears and then it's page whatever the final page is. Like it's, I don't, I don't know. There's something about things like that where it's even funny too, because I, um, this is a kind of maybe a false analogy, but I'm going to try it. But when I'm editing college essays for high school students, I'm always like, 
if you're going to make a comparison, like, why don't you suffuse it into the whole essay or at least a lot of it? Because otherwise it might seem shallow. Like, it's 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 easy to come up with a quick, uh, you know, simile or, like, um, quick analogy, but, like, that doesn't always mean it's worthwhile or good. Like, maybe try exploring something more deeply or, like, instead of coming up with one comparison point, can you come up with five? You know, like, can we do something a little more deep here um and i i think it's deep enough or like the connection's relevant enough but i, I maybe would have liked to see a little more throughout the essay like maybe to beyonce's whole career maybe there's like other videos other songs other language or something but it's just kind of like i don't know it felt it felt weirdly convenient and then it didn't feel like she wanted to commit to it all the way that i guess maybe that's part of it to me it felt like she kind of wanted to half commit to the idea or the comparison and then just kind of ran away from it maybe but um, yeah, I thought that was interesting and at least worth discussing. Um, the other thing I'll say in 257, um, and I, I did make an allusion to this, but let's talk about it quickly. I think there's another book here that she wanted to write, and it's the book about like Euripides and his and his style of writing. Um, from mm-hmm. 257 in the Medea chapter, um, she talks about the the play. Uh, and it says, uh, we want to believe that someone could commit such a catastrophe, uh, catastrophic crime, sorry, only if she is out of her mind. An additional problem is the deus ex machina that it so troubled Aristotle. How do you convey to a modern theater audience all the symbolism inherent in this that Medea has somehow morphed during the play from an abandoned wife, face down on the ground, howling over her treacherous husband, to, a, to an immortal or almost immortal figure, that the act of killing her children has not broken her as we would expect, but made her more powerful than ever? there's a gendered element in this disbelief of course and then she talks about how men who do things like this are considered like impressive and not monstrous Um, and then it says but for Euripides and for ancient times Medea is far from that she's not a monster she's like a powerful being so I I actually enjoyed that theatrical analysis of like oh here's how it would have been presented here's why Aristotle didn't like it here's why the audience at the time probably was skeptical of it or didn't take to it but it also made me wonder like should we really just be breaking down Euripides' career and like, what does this guy believe? What, what did he believe about the gods? What did he have to say about their role? And was he like radically, it seems like he might have been a radical in some ways, like radically different yeah. than other Greeks and had other belief systems and like other ways to approach this in the literary sense. Um, not that the paragraph didn't work for Medea too. I think, again, her analysis in that chapter is solid throughout. But then a moment like that made me just wonder, is there a book in this book? You know, do, do I really want to be reading how she would interpret the life of Euripides and his works and how they hold up in the pantheon against other Greeks? I don't know. It, uh, it did raise my attention. And, and maybe it was because, again, my normal interaction with scholarship or analysis like this is essay length, not book length. So I think by mm-hmm. the end of this book, here's the other point I'll make about the second half of the book, but... I think by the end of this book, I was just exploring other topics and ideas like that because the issue with books of this length to me often is the points get made repeatedly, even if they're new context, even if there's slightly new nuances and stuff. I think at some point my brain just kind of goes into blunt force mode of like, yeah, that's kind of the same point, but with this sprinkling, yeah, that's kind of the same point, but with this angle, yeah, that like, and so I think in the back half, I was just exploring other ideas that she picked up on. Like when she slightly shifted focus, my brain just kind of jumped to it and would think like, ooh, maybe that's a different book. Ooh, maybe that's a different thing. Um, Because I think her, the points she's making throughout the book are like solid but do get repeated. And so that was the other thing my brain was doing in the back half. Um, And again, part of that is just because 
essays like this, work like this, writing like this, it's just so often essays to me, not books. And it's just, I don't know, I, it engaged me, but I guess my final point is it's really difficult to make a book this wide ranging and kind of exploring this many topics and to keep it fresh and engaging. And, you know, her writing goes a long way to that. Her style is approachable and kind of funny. Uh, though the humor, I don't know. I, I Again, I wouldn't sell this book to somebody else on its humor, but it is nice to have. It makes it approachable and kind of easier to read. But yeah, right. that, that's kind of what my brain was doing in the back, back half, um, which I think is a very personal way that I responded to scholarship of this length, where it's just kind of like that's how my brain stayed engaged. Uh, yeah, a long-winded answer, but hopefully that makes it clear, you know, how I reacted to, to half two, second part. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And, and I even in the second half, I was thinking to myself that a couple of the pieces, the Eurydice one and the Medea one, I was like, this reads more to me like a literary analysis rather than mm -hmm. to the point of her, her overall work. Well, I so. will also say this, and this is a, to discredit myself and to give Haynes maybe some more freedom in a different version of this, but she clearly wrote this to people who have no clue what these myths are because the, in the back yeah. half, what started to grade on me as well is there is so much plot summary. Like, she, because she has yeah. to. We, <laughs> she assumes the audience has never heard the stories, but that means that, like, well, how many, what page count-wise, would you say 50% of this book is her in a charming, approachable way, but, like, it's just summarizing myths. It's just like, yeah. then this happens, yeah. then she does the, and, like, again, there's little sprinkles of commentary. She keeps it fresh it's not like bad but at some point like i can only read so much plot summary honestly before i just start to lose baseline attention where i'm like yeah i don't want to read another three pages about what happens in the play i just don't yeah. like i and yeah. so so coming back to the criticism of me like i would like to see her version of this where she assumes the audience knows the plot <laughs> so she has to spend zero time summarizing plot and can just immediately dive into like analytical points um, in a weird way does it not reflect our own debates on this podcast where we're like how much should we summarize versus how much we, should we assume the person has read you know we, right. we, we have struggled right. with this in our own way but and so to me that also kind of just came to mind where I was like huh I wonder what she would do in like a lecture setting or, or maybe a book setting or essay setting too but with with an audience where she's like yeah I don't have to pretend you don't know this I don't have to spend half of my time summarizing to you um, mm -hmm. that, that came up to me too just because I, it's like I started to get fatigued by all the summaries and it's like I imagine she got a little fatigued by that too I, you know who knows how long it took her to write the book or, or whatever but it, it was just kind of like I wonder if she wants to be summarizing plots of myths this much or plays you know right, like when she right. could instead be doing the analysis um, so there's that component too did that wait did that kind of grate on you over time um, I noticed it definitely especially in the latter half um Especially with like Medea, where it was just so heavily, oh yeah, literary analysis, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I was like in the latter half, I appreciated it because I was like, I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> that's some it. of these characters. Yeah, that's a conundrum. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the trouble right there. And for me, it's like I, it's necessary for me because I didn't know most of the stories. So yeah, the summary was welcome. But I yeah, I just could not help but wonder, as someone who. It's like, man, can I take another couple pages of summarizing a new play um, to get to the more 
pointed, opinionated, analytical stuff. And I think for the most part, it's worth it. Hopefully I haven't seemed too negative. But yeah, the back half, I don't know. It it felt just as thoughtful and well done. But I do think the way I approached it changed and the way my brain was kind of engaging with it changed. So hopefully hopefully that summary was clear. Any thoughts uh, for you on the second half? Did you read it differently? Um, I didn't. I just noticed that she, I felt like she wrote it differently, like from a different kind of uh, almost purpose in mind <laughs> for some of them. So, but yeah, like that, that would be like the, the Medea and the Eurydice ones. They for me were uh, not as clearly aligned with her thesis as the others. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think that's fine. Let's do our final segments then, shall we? No other thoughts on the essays, I suppose. Okay, let's talk about it. Critical assistance first. Final, second to last segment, rather. This is when we go outside of ourselves for some thoughts on the book, some analysis and reactions to the book. And so we've each chosen a source. It could be like an essay, a video even, or some maybe even audio. Have we, have we ever done like an audio reaction? I don't think so. <laughs> maybe we'll find one. Um, there are a lot of book YouTube channels, so maybe I'll search that next time. But yeah, we have chosen a source to discuss that reacted to the work. Since I just went for a long time, Amanda, let's do yours first. What do you bring <laughs> to us for uh, critical assistance? What should we talk about? Sure. Mine is from The Guardian, mm-hmm. and it's called Pandora's Jar by Natalie Haynes Review, Rescuing Women in Greek Myths, and this was written by Charlotte Higgins. She says, part of the project of this hugely lively, fun, yet serious book is to unpeel the accretions that have affixed themselves over time, like barnacles on a shipwreck to the women of Greek myth from Ban- Pandora to Helen of Troy via Phaedra and Medea. Haynes examines the original sources for the characters, noting how, often, though far from invariably, later incarnations have underplayed the much fuller, more complex roles given to them in antiquity. Um, so, she states the purpose pretty well, <clears throat> and I would just like to point out that she, she does mention Phaedra and Medea, and with Medea, as I said, like I felt like it did not really fit with all the other contexts with all the other essays because Medea starts off pretty full yes. as a character. Yeah. And then she, the analysis for later works that she gives is just like, yeah, women continue to love to play her because she is so complicated. So yeah. it was not, she gets 10 persona or whatever she says. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So later incarnations have underplayed the much fuller, more complex roles given to them in antiquity. I'm like, but Medea didn't really fit that. Um, And then also she says that the book is lively, fun, and serious. Um, And I would say that it is light. I thought that the word lively was definitely a word that I would use for this book, which is funny because it's, you know, about Greek myths Uh, (laughs) and about, you know, ancient Greek language and <laughs> real scholar, yeah, real scholarship. Yeah. Not even like pseudo commentary kind of scholarship, like real, right. you know. If you're actually doing the ancient Greek translations yourself, then yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Serious. This is an academic book, um, but lively is definitely an adjective I would use for um, her writing style. It is, yeah. I'll even say my one of my final comments in previously was that the second half, like the summary, started to wear on me. I don't think it started to wear on her though. She did keep it. She kept kind of an even tone and approach to doing that. Yes, she kept did. it pretty light. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. 
Um, she's also apparently um, Haynes is um, she's written some fiction, so it makes oh, sense good. that she she does well with this. Um, um, she, uh, the author goes on Higgins goes on to say, who precisely is doing the looking at Greek myths and who is interpreting the female characters is an important focus of the book. Robert Graves comes in for a bit of flack. His classic retelling of legendary tales is often regarded as a definitive, somehow neutral work. Haynes rightly points out that it is not a straight canonical retelling of Greek myth is impossible. The vast wealth of different versions and variants in Greek literature means that any reteller must make creative choices. Often those choices have involved downplaying, exoticizing, or dehumanizing female characters. And I think that's a, a really uh, nice way to summarize her one of her main points, that different versions and variants in Greek mean that there are creative choices being made. So if we look back at like Eurydice um, Mm -hmm. and how Eurydice like has no real backstory at first and then she's given kind of a backstory and then there's, she's given more of a backstory and then again, it's like stripped away from her later and, and stuff like that. Like that's, that's really interesting. And then the exoticizing, I was like, well, maybe that would be the Medea aspect because she's a foreigner She's not Greek, really. Um, and she even calls herself a foreigner at one point. Yes. Um, but, yeah, yeah the uh, and I like that she pointed out, like, the Robert Graves thing because... Uh, yeah, we didn't talk about Haynes, that. It's a, it's a good point. I'm glad this reviewer picked up on it, too. But it does come up more than more than once. Yeah, yeah. Haynes is not a fan. <laughs> well, yeah, and even if even if she were, the point stands. I will say that the, all the language she infused into the essays and, and that work she did did make the point incredibly well, which is just like you can't trust any defin- – there's no definitive edition. There's there way too yeah. many plays, way too many interpretations, way too much language. To, like no ver- Some versions can be beloved or trusted the most, but there's never definitive versions. It's too much, mm-hmm. too complicated. And then finally – This is a hugely enjoyable and witty book, which will appeal to admirers of novels such as Madeline Miller's Circe, Camilla Shamsey, which we've read one of her novels, Camilla Shamsey's Home Fire, and Haynes' own fiction. It is a generous book, too, demonstrating how much space and energy there is in these old stories, stories that need only to be activated and animated by new readers and writers to burst into fresh life. Right. And I will say that Haynes did do a good job in her summaries of making these stories seem more enjoyable. Like you and I, we've we had to read, um, uh, we had analyzed a couple of maybe like the what I think we've read a passage from the Odyssey and um, a couple of yeah, other myths. Those and, are deep, ju- deep in the podcast feed. We did some Penguin <laughs> Little Classics, which were just, yeah. they were abbreviated versions. So we didn't, yeah, it's yeah. like we didn't read the Odyssey, but we read like two chapters from it. Yeah. Years ago at this point. Isn't that mm-hmm. crazy? Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> but um, I found her, uh, Haynes's summaries of these stories way more enjoyable than when I actually read <laughs> the stories. 
That is, um, yeah. My well, I also remember clearly that one with the Cyclops. I remember loving it a lot more than you. So it could just be that the well, who knows why that is? I was gonna, I was gonna, you know, do the simple analysis of like maybe they're really kind of straightforward, masculine in, in ignoring the women. It's like just a lot of imagery about violence and death, or I don't know. I but I just remember reacting to that pretty well and thinking like, yeah, this is entertaining enough and like has some real intensity to it but also mm-hmm. yeah it all yeah i think that having a, a friendly kind of fun voice like this like there's nothing friendly or fun about reading those translation originals you know yeah They're pretty intense yeah. pretty like dire they are and a, a lot of it is like a million names kind of like thrown at you yeah. and listing listing the murders that are happening oh, yeah. without actually like describing anything that that was like my big thing is like there's no description it's like it's like reading a pamphlet <laughs> yeah one of them too is i forget which one it was not the cyclops one though it was a different one but it was one of them was painful yes it was really really boring yeah, yeah. um but when i read haynes's summaries of them i'm like man these stories sound amazing <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true and it's telling how often like even in the medea chapter which was her most thoroughly quoted one I, even then she wasn't quoting a ton of original text she was actually rewriting yeah. it and summarizing it like in clever yeah. ways so that's noteworthy because yeah, exactly. <laughs> the originals might not be that engaging to a modern reader Mm-hmm. yeah well said any other thoughts on that <laughs> review any other quotes um Nope, that was good. It. Yeah, earned earned its celebratory uh, plaudits or whatever. I chose a pretty brief one, and it was also mostly positive, so we'll know that going in. And it's just from a random source I'd never chosen before. I I too was going to pick the Guardian one and some other stalwarts that we've done, but <clears throat> this is new. It's from the Gloss Book Club, which I know absolutely nothing about. So if you go follow <laughs> the Gloss Book Club or you know are fans of theirs, I don't know what they do. I literally clicked on the link and read it, and that's it. It's by Bruna Luby is the author's name who's attached to this. So don't know what their deal is, but this is the from that review i think they gave it like four out of five stars so positive review and and really some simple quotes but we can discuss uh quote one if i had to describe this book in one word it would be complete there's so much information out there about greek mythology so many versions that it's difficult to believe what's true and what's not so let's start there. Did, did you find her to be like a trustworthy enough guide? I feel like with the translation stuff, you kind of have to. Like to, to question, yeah. I, I think I questioned some of the, how she puts arguments together and some of her, I don't know, leaps and conclusions. And we unpack that with the Eurydice stuff, etc. But the one thing it's like I'm in no place to judge is the translation work. And it's the most For interesting sure. to me. Like it, it did compel me almost the most because of my own kind of ignorance there. Yeah, when... Um... I was like, oh, is she a PhD in this? I know that she had studied the um, ancient Greek literature because she said that in the introduction. And then, but as soon as like that first in Pandora, when she discusses the difference between like a jar versus a box, I was like, oh, damn. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're right. Right. Definitely. Right. Yeah. I, I 100% thought that she was um, credible uh, as soon as I read that. Yeah, and in that sense, I do think that we questioned, or at least I did, whether the Pandora one should have led. But I do think that relying on that translation point and kind of hanging an argument on it, it is the right one to start with. It sets the tone for the book, sort of, where it's like, Mm -hmm. this is the kind of work I'll be doing. This is the kind of thinking I'm doing. So, yeah, that was a smart one to start with. Um, 
Another quote from this review, I think my favorite thing about this book is that it feels like you're reading a fun dissertation, which she put in quotes. I can't even begin to imagine the amount of research Natalie did to find all this information. Well, the latter point we know because it's in the back of the book, so there's that. Um, but what do you think about fun dissertation as a description? I actually thought it was kind of a brilliant way to put it. Um, yeah, I think I would sure. agree. And I, and I, to be honest, it's like in your time, I mean, you have the master's degree, so you had to write some form of, you know, dissertation or whatever they called it, but uh, how many dissertations have you engaged with? um, Not many. (laughs) Right, because in in scholarship, like, especially if you're an undergraduate, like, you don't actually read dissertations that often. You read published essays and books. (laughs) And so it's kind of, it's a funny comparison. I agree with it, and I kind of liked it, but then also I paused and was like, I think I only have ever read two dissertations, and they were both by professors I had, and they, like, it was because they told us about them, and we're like, oh, yeah, I, I wrote about that. If you're interested, like, go check it out. You can find it. And so that's the interesting thing. I was just, it just gave mm-hmm. me pause where I was like, oh, yeah, that's true, but also, like, huh, never thought about that. <laughs> and it's it's an odd adjective to associate with a dissertation. You don't think of them as fun, necessarily, but right, right. This, 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 is, this book is definitely lighthearted enough, so I think that's a great description of it. Yeah, I, I agree too. It was, and it was, yeah, just an interesting way to interesting way to phrase it. Final quote, another one again. It was a short review. Um, Two things that you should expect from this book: many names, really a ton, and long chapters. It's a dense book and requires all of your attention reading it. It's not the kind of book to read while watching TV. So a couple points here. One, the names. I mean, come on, you know, you know, you've got a friend in me. Whoever this author was again, <laughs> <laughs> Miss uh, Yeah Luby or whatever. Like, yeah, all right, sister, you and me both. I, I get it. It also weighs weighs on me heavily. Um, but I, I did want to bring up the final point because I think getting into like online book communities as we sort of have through Instagram or like YouTube, I follow some like book people. I I do think I'm aware now or more aware of the fact that like some people do read as a second activity. It's like a background thing when this TV's on, like they read. And like, I, since I just don't read that way, like I, I, the only thing I'll do while reading sometimes is leave quiet music on, but even that is, isn't every time, but it, it is worth pointing out then. And this will come up in our recommendations, I'm sure. But yeah, this is not like a second experience type of read. You absolutely must be focused on this while reading it. Otherwise, it would be kind of pointless to engage with because it's intricate. The arguments are, you know, can be subtle at times and the the information is heavy and and frequent. So, yeah, it's just a it's a fine point to make. And I do think she's right to make it. But it, it did remind me that, like, oh, yeah, some people just engage with reading in a, in a different way than than we yeah. might or than I do. Certainly, I it's crazy to me that anybody could be able to read and do something else at all. Like I can't, especially something that's like TV is so language based as well. You're already engaging yourself in, in a language based activity, which is reading. And then on top of that, you're trying to listen to like, listen to a podcast or listen to a TV. Like there's no way I would be able to do that. No way. Especially a book this dense. No, no, you would you would have to choose one or the other for sure. It is funny, too, because it is almost like it's a point that you would almost think doesn't need to be made. But I, I do think it does need to be made. I just have I've learned over time that there are some kind of like multitasker type readers out there. So I guess, yeah, it, it is actually worth mentioning that, I suppose. And I appreciated that she did. But, yeah, it was isn't that kind of fascinating? I just when I saw that, I, I was reminded of like, oh, yeah, some people 
I don't know. They, they just um, have very different approaches to reading, <laughs> different styles. And mm. you're right, though. I To me, the double audio thing starts to bug me a ton. Like, I can't do two audio-based things at the same time. But you're right about the language. Mm-hmm. Like, when I put on music when I read, it's almost always instrumental music of any mm-hmm. kind. It's like, rarely can I put on song li- with lyrics while reading. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it does require your attention, so noted mm-hmm. any final thoughts on those quotes pretty straightforward but no i agree with yeah, them yeah solid final segment then amanda let's close this one out and jump to the lightly literary hall of fame this is when each of us picks an element or aspect of the writing of the work of something and inducts it into the hall of fame so obviously it has to be something that we praise about the book with this one it should not be hard since we both enjoyed this one a good amount so what do you want to yeah. induct into the hall of fame uh, mine is just that it's the most approachable academic work and like just something that's so scholarly, but it's infused with so much personality in the writing. Right. Yeah, I think, well, yeah, well said. And I think it's, um, well, kind of an interesting point because have we had anything like this? How would you compare it to the Oscar Wilde book, for example? Oscar Wilde, like... I liked the Oscar Wilde book for its different uh, uses of, like, media, right? We got newspaper clippings, we got quotes, we got all kinds of stuff. Um, But I enjoyed that book because I also was, like, really familiar with Oscar Wilde. Mm -hmm. This book I was not necessarily familiar with the topics that were being brought forth, and, and I definitely... Am no scholar of um, Greek mythology, mm-hmm. but um, I found it entertaining anyway. With the Wild in America, if I weren't already familiar with Wild, I don't know that I would have enjoyed it as much. And, um, yeah, and he's a much more niche. Like Greek mythology is is true cultural. What do we want to say? Crossover suffuse like it's suffused into our culture. It's become just one and the same with so many of our stories and everything. And yeah, making the case for Oscar Wilde is sort of like a a public figure everybody should know. It's it's just a much tougher case. Yeah. So yeah. No, I agree. I actually think I like that book more would be was going to be my like, I think that one was also written kind of approachably. And I also will mm-hmm. say as kind of a final judgment, even though I know we're in the we're in the compliment section. Um, again, would you, would you recommend this book for its humor? I, it was just enough lively was the adjective we picked up on earlier. And I think that is kind of perfect. I just didn't. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't call this book humorous. And I do think there's like huge swaths of the book where she she keeps things light and engaging, but like she kind of gives up on the jokes and then occasionally throws a joke in, like a little bit of a rejoinder commentary. I don't know if we'd even call it sass or something, but like, I don't know. I just didn't, I wouldn't call this book funny. Like I just yeah. didn't, it just didn't strike me that way. Funny is not a word that I would, I would use for this. I would say um, there's definitely some sassy bits, um, some uh, sat, uh, satire and, um, and it's, I just think yeah, lively is, is the correct word. We do get a sense of her personality, but it's not, I'd never laughed out loud. She's got a really engaged voice. Like she seems very alert, very, yeah. Like insightful anyway. Yeah. Lively's perfect. My yeah. uh, introduction to the Hall of Fame will be the enjoyment of language. Now, this is interesting because so many of the authors we've loved on this write wonderfully, like they use language really well. But I want yeah. to induct the fact that uh, I don't think we've had an author so much revel in 
like double meanings, multiple interpretations, the way you have to infer things based on what gets said or what doesn't get said. And I just thought that was kind of fun. I It's unique for sure. Like we don't read a lot of academic scholarship, so <laughs> that's not really our podcast focus. Um, and so this was unique in that sense. Like not many other authors have even attempted this. But yeah, I just think her her play with language and her thoughtfulness about it is going to stick with me. It will be the thing that I think about when I see this book on the shelf in a decade. Yeah. Probably. Who knows yeah, what definitely. I'll remember in a decade, but <laughs> that's what I think I'll remember. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I loved her analysis of the language and, and just thought that it really uh, lended credence to her argument overall as well. Yeah. Of all the things I've said where the arguments either didn't work for me or just kind of fell a little flat, almost none of them, actually none of them were based on the language stuff. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> it was to me, yeah, the thing that sold it the best. Um, other things that I quibbled with were not related to that. So every, every time she brought up a word for careful consideration and maybe that history has forgotten, ignored and misinterpreted, it was always worth it. So yeah, it was very, very cool. All right. Any final thoughts on Pandora's Jar by Natalie Haynes? A different book than we thought it was, but not a disappointment, <laughs> <Yeah>. thankfully. <Yep. laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you put it well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least it didn't let us down, even if it wasn't what we thought we were getting. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Okay, uh, that'll wrap up our episode on this one, a fun read. If you stuck with us all the way through the episode, we appreciate you, as always. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook, at The Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word, and leave any ratings on a podcast platform you're on, Spotify, iTunes, wherever. It helps a ton to get noticed. And we have other books coming up, so if you've stuck with us this far, we have picked, I think, three ahead is how we do it. Amanda, what are our next three reads? Next up, we have Civil Warland and Bad Decline by George Saunders, which is um, some short stories and a novella all collected into one. Mm -hmm. Then we have To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, which is a classic, apparently. And then we have King Leopold's Ghost, and that's by... Adam Hochschild. I think it's, is it Horschild? I don't know. I don't know Hirsch, names. Oh, yeah. Horschild. Yes. No, no, no. You, na- you nailed it. That is one that's been on my shelf for an eternity, and this is just my excuse to read it. I've read, it's funny, too, because I've read, like, the first two chapters of it a couple times. It's the, um, it's just really intense and also pretty scholarly, so I just think I need that motivation to finish it finally. So nice. It yeah. is about the worst instance of slave trading in I think all of human history so you will be it's it's grim stuff uh yeah but but you know strong scholarship very dense interesting topics and really but yeah I think it'll have some brutality to it for for better or worse something that we must grapple with um (laughs) Anyway, um, cool. Those are the reads we've got coming up. Couple fiction, couple nonfiction, the usual balance, and some short stories, too. Civil War Land, so change it up a bit. Okay. As always, thanks for listening all the way through, folks. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages. (laughs) 